abstract high level goals, which sound nice like reputation, brand value, things like that, but in practice don't motivate people who are designing your product system or service. So just bear that in, the bear that in mind. Why do we want to do Vermeers? Number one, reason number one is if you do Vermeers, do an amazing Vermeer, I should say, you have no bad experiences. Now I need to qualify this astounding claim uh, because everyone has bad experiences when they're creating something from scratch. But the thing that for me is really uh, focused on driving down are those bad experiences that you experience during production. Now, have you had a bad experience? I'm sure you've had, um, for example, uh, when you are trying to do reliability stuff, have you ever been forced into a familiar which has poor facilitation or you worked really hard on doing a reliability report or doing some sort of testing or, and it didn't change anything? Uh, did you just sit in a room of people who are, who are forced with cattle prods to do some reliability engineering activity on that particularly particular day? Or are you just doing it to satisfy contractual requirements or your boss just wants it done? Or you're doing it because some standard has been imposed upon you and therefore uh, you have to say that you've done this level of effort. Now, an amazing FAMIA makes sure that people who turn up to that FAMIA have no bad experiences. One of the reasons why is they're brought into it and they walk away from the FAMIA, which they are trained for and prepared for in advance with a raft of really good pointers on how things can improve in their small domain. Now, one of the reasons we often have bad experiences when it comes to Famia, Famias I should say, is because of this guy here. Uh, I often use the so-called enemies of reliability. Um, and first and foremost is our infant manager, that boss who is always, always pressuring you to do things on time, on budget, and he or she often wants what we call WTF, which we all know stands for the wrong thing fast. And the wrong thing fast is a painful experience. That's where you get, where you get forced into a room, you get forced into a, or forced to do something. You're told, I don't care what the outcome is, or there is a passing fancy at the outcome, but in practice, you're being told to do this because for whatever reason, organizationally, your organization says this needs to happen. And, and when we have our, uh, our infant manager driving the culture of Vermeers or any reliability activity uh, where they demand the wrong thing fast, it is a painful experience. That is a bad Vermeer. Well, that sorry leads to bad Vermeers. The other, the other bad experience that we often get is when we have this process seller, the person who wants you to do something just to satisfy a checklist that he or she has come up with or has been told to impose. For some reason, these people exist and get this perverse satisfaction out of making you do stuff to satisfy their checklist. They really enjoy ticking boxes. Now, this person really doesn't care how you do it. They just want the report ASAP. That's not a good, that's not an amazing for me. That is a painful experience where, where effort is confused with the outcomes. So these are our two enemies of, of uh, the amazing Famia. Now the friend of our amazing Famia is the amazing Famia facilitator. Now, if you go back to our definition of what a Famia is at the start of this webinar, 
it was a very wordy textbook thing where you where it says you need to do this this go through failure modes root causes correct them but the heart of an amazing familiar is it, it can be it, well sorry the symptom of an amazing familiar sorry the symptoms are wrong term what uh, what you need to have to, to result in amazing familiar is an amazing familiar facilitator someone who is passionate about what they do knows what they're doing prepares the participants make sure that training is up to speed everyone walks into that room ready to go and everyone walks away from an with an amazing experience now an amazing familiar usually we have we have a, have a rule we have around about four to eight people and what we want to do when we have that group of four to eight people is have that amazing facilitator extract all that useful information out of those participants who are cross-functional representatives not the junior guy who drew the short straw uh not just the entire electrical engineering team because they're the only ones who take it seriously and the mechanical engineering team didn't turn up so let's just fill all their vacant spaces with more electrical engineers no cross-functional representatives you can see in this in this uh, picture here, which sort of gives you the idea of a typical familiar classroom layout or familiar room layout, you have no laptops apart from one person who's the scribe, and that scribe is annotating or sorry, recording everything we do every single step of the way. So this is what a, a typical amazing familiar room looks like. You have the projector screen where everyone can see what that scribe is writing, and of course a facilitator who typically is not part of the familiar itself in that they don't have a really good um uh, they don't have uh some skin in the game they're often externally provided they're often uh external uh, contractors or consultants who do this for a living they're the ones who look who uh, facilitate these experts who are responsible for creating something responsible for uh finding the process responsible for making something amazing they they facilitate the discussion and that's perhaps the most important part of what a familiar is. So a familiar is all about preventing problems, making our first design a reliable design and we'll get to that very, very shortly. So that's the first reason you want to do an amazing familiar, no bad experiences. The second reason you want to do an amazing familiar is no complicated equations. One of the many criticisms reliability engineers get is that oh, all this statistics and why all this and exponential that, oh my goodness, it's just too complicated. Well, lucky for you or lucky for people who are complaining to you about reliability being too complicated, uh, for me is involved no complicated equations. Now, most reliability engineering courses go something like this. They start with uh, a a horrific outcome of something failing. There's a nuclear power plant exploding or melting down. In this case, it's an air, airplane crashing, uh, train derailing. It could be any number of horrific disasters that have uh, been indelibly inked on our collective psyche over the years. The Coma Narrows Bridge is a very famous one as well. And so we start with this imagery of just catastrophe and disasters. And then in that reliability engineering course, the uh, instructor who sometimes is a what we call a ponderous professor says, hey, remember that air, airplane that crashed or that nuclear power plant that melted down? That's why reliability is really, 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 really important. Now let's go into 
all sorts of equations and charts and stuff. Now, the familiars are the opposite of this. And our ponderous professors, those guys and girls who somehow try and, and, and uh, enshrine complex statistics and mathematics and reliability engineering tend to not like familiars. The reason being is that from their perspective, familiars involve subjective assessment and not years of painstaking, painstaking data analysis, which this person loves. So if you want to avoid complicated equations or you work in a team where there is a common refrain that uh, reliability engineering is too complicated, well, familiars are the tool for you, tool for you, I should say, because they involve no complicated equations. We, and the reason why is, be, is because measuring or analyzing reliability can be important but it's not nearly as important as designing in reliability. And familiars are all about making your first design a reliable design so that you uh, don't have to fix stuff or redo stuff that you thought you did well. Which brings me to the next reason. Number three, why do you want to do amazing familiars? Because there are no complex, uh, expensive fixes to your design, your process, if you do an amazing familiar early. Let me explain, because that might sound like an outrageous claim. So in many of my courses, I, I, have, I use this example, uh, this system here as an example, a smart lock. A smart lock's an amazing system. It has uh, lots of different technologies represented in it. Um, it represents, I suppose, emerging technological trends where Smart technology is, uh, is, is becoming more and more prevalent in everyday uh, objects and things like doors. And so this is a fantastic, uh, fantastic example system for me to demonstrate how useful for me is that. So if we look at this uh, smart lock in greater detail, there's obviously a ton of different components and subsystems and assemblies that all need to come together uh, to make our smart lock work. Now smart lock, is essentially a mechanical lock, a traditional mechanical lock, lock with what we call smart technology. It's got its own electronics. It hooks up, uh, it can communicate with your phone via Bluetooth. It can communicate with anything through the internet. And so you can do all sorts of things like have that lock automatically unlock when you with your smartphone in your pocket walk up to it. And there's tons of other things that smart locks can do as well. You can lock or unlock your smartphone from the other side of the world. Sorry, you can lock or unlock your smart lock from the other side of your, the world if you have a smartphone. So how is this relevant for familiars? Well, let's just say that this electric motor, which is connected to the circuit board, like you, as you can see here with these two wires, uh, let's just say uh, uh, these connections, these, these soldered connections, let's just, perhaps they're prone to failing when our smart lock is in a door which is slammed hard a lot. Now, think of anyone of, anyone of us who have had children ranging from, you know, three years of age all the way up until 25 years of age in some cases, it, it just takes a temp, temper tantrum for our poor front door with the smart lock attached to be subjected to a very emotional, emotional slam. And now that could wreak havoc on our smart lock and because we perhaps didn't anticipate the level of stresses that a slamming door would exert on the solder joints 
that connect the connect our electric motor to the circuit board. Um, and solder joints aren't the strongest thing in the world. So just think about how such a simple uh, failure mode could completely immobilize your smart lock. And even though it's got tons of amazing technology, one of the simplest ways your thing can fail perhaps might be the most dominant way or, or the most uh, uh, pressing reason that customers aren't happy with it. So what can we do? Well, there's tons of things we can do. Before we design it, we can do things like um, put these, what we call corrective actions in play. Instead of having a thin gauge wire, we have a thicker gauge wire to provide more contact area with the, with the electric motor terminals. We could also make sure we have shorter wires to limit the total mass that our wires have. So when the door does slam, there's less momentum uh, being transferred to the, uh, to the contacts or to the, to, to the terminals. Another thing we can do is have clips to physically restrain that wire or cable. When it comes up to the uh, circuit board, instead of having solder joints, we can have um, a socket and plug instead, which makes it, by the way, a lot easier to assemble as well, which is a really useful thing to do. We could also understand that even though we're going to have solder joints, uh, we can't get away from solder joints at the electric motor end of the cable. We could incorporate visual inspection of motor uh, solder joints when we get them from the supplier. And we could also have surveillance uh, automated testing where we say take one out of every 10 motors from the supplier, subject them to a more stringent examination to make sure those solder joints are good. Now, these are some really simple and great ideas to make our first design a reliable design. And this is how reliability happens. When you're able to think of things early enough, when you're able to get ahead of the curve, when you're making your first design a reliable design, you're, you have the ability to incorporate all these really simple ideas really inexpensively because you haven't designed your thing yet. So this is what Vermeers are all about. Those no complicated expensive fixes, which only become complicated and expensive because you've realized something is wrong after you've designed the rest of the system. Which leads on to the next reason you need to do a FAMIA. We should do a FAMIA, I should say. There's no, I wish we could have, we, we, I know we, there's no, I wish we thought of, would have, I'm struggling. There is no, I wish we would have thought of that before we insert some time in the past here. That is, we don't regret, regret to ourselves not doing something two weeks ago, two years ago, three months ago, because we took the time to think about what might've gone wrong before we rushed to designing, rushed into designing our system. And so, I'm sure every one of us, whether it be a home renovation project through to homework, through to, uh, through to any, any endeavor that technically minded people throw themselves into, there have been times where we go, oh man, if only I had thought of that before I went and plastered up my entire wall, I would not have to pull the entire wall off and uh, start again. So we want to avoid being frustrated. It helps us avoid becoming this frustrated engineer here. For me, is make us stop and think uh, before we jump. Engineers tend to be tigers. Tigers are, uh, tigers are the opposite of turtles. Tigers 
uh, what we call people who want to race in and solve problems. Turtles are people who want to go on their shells and wait till the problem goes away or someone else solves a problem. Not us, we're engineers, we're technically minded people. We want to jump and solve problems and that sometimes gets us into trouble. So if we use for me is it forces us to stop, think about where, where, where we are about to jump to, what problem we're trying to solve and make sure we're solving the problem without incorporating tons of others later on. Which leads us into the thing I've been saying multiple times that our first design is a reliable design. And that is huge. A lot of organizations want to rush to make something that can work versus something that will work. So instead of having a beautiful, slick looking smart lock prototype, how many of us have been involved in organizations where the first working prototype of whatever it is they're making looks more like the one on the right? It's bolted together with a uh, with temporary fasteners, there's stuff leaking out because we had to glue something together because I didn't fit perfectly. The handle doesn't fit, so we have Jerry rig some sort of wrench or spanner to uh, make sure we can test the shaft being turned. There are so many prototypes, which uh, first prototypes, which look like the one on the right. But if we slow down, do a familiar, understand our system, understand what's going to likely go wrong our first prototype is going to be so much closer to the final prototype that things like budget and time to market and schedule become a breeze. And remember, we're not talking about rocket science here. If you and your team are smart enough to design a smart lock, or whatever it is you're designing, then you're also, by definition, smart enough to know what will likely go wrong. And for me, it's all about harnessing that corporate information in a really usable way to again, make sure that our first design is a reliable design. And when we do that, we save lots of time and money. Now I'm gonna go through an example I often use um, in my courses and in my webinars about how we can compare what we call traditional design processes with uh, design processes that use the reliability mindset. Now the, the traditional approach to designing something is, real, is essentially build, test, fix. We have an initial raw design effort, which is represented by this red hump here on these axes. On the horizontal axis, you can see, uh, we, we, uh, sorry, the horizontal axis represents design time or schedule, the duration we spend in this particular phase. And the vertical axis represents the amount of money we're spending along the way. So this the little red hump here represents our initial design effort. And once we have uh, finished our initial design, then we need all sorts of engineering support to turn our first design into a manufacturable, manufacturable design or a usable design. Uh, we obviously need to certify or somehow validate or verify what we do. And of course, along the journey, when we test our prototypes, uh, we then have to eliminate failure modes and mechanisms. Now, the reality is that big monstrous hump of time and effort is us remedying preventable problems. Now, conversely, if we use, uh, if we use the same approach where we use a reliability mindset, we invest a lot more time and money upfront in our initial design, but have a look at what happens to the follow-on activities. Because our first design is a reliable design, 
we don't need to spend nearly as much time eliminating failure modes. We spend, don't need to spend nearly as much time having other engineering support functions turn whatever it is we created, whatever Frankenstein thing we created into something we can manufacture. And of course, certification becomes a problem because that first design is a reliable design. So if we compare the overall time and cost profile of our uh, process that involves a reliability mindset with our traditional approach to designing stuff, it turns out that in this example, using that reliability mindset, uh, slowing down, investing more time and money into our first design meant that overall, our product was 73% less expensive to produce and we got there in half the time. So when people say, uh, ask you to choose between reliability, time and cost, you get to have two of those, not all three, that's nonsense. If you, if you invest in reliability from the start, you uh, really drive down your schedule, you really drive down your budgets. And the reason is because we're preventing problems. This is what Vermeers are all about. Now, for those of you who haven't seen this before um, and, uh, and are really questioning where this comes from, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to explain how this is a real case scenario. Before we do that, I want to go back to our enemy of reliability, our infant manager, that person who has that money bomb right next to the head, who wants the wrong thing fast. Uh, the reliability mindset makes this guy or girl go crazy because we ask him to slow down, invest more time and money up front into getting our first design reliable. And that just doesn't gel with how they're built. They wanna demonstrate progress as quickly as possible um, for as little money as possible. That's how they get their kicks in life. So the infant manager almost certainly will destroy any uh, decent reliability engineering activity or effort and that includes our amazing Vermeers. Now, all these curves, all these lines, all these humps, these weren't things that I made up or, or lines that I randomly drew. These were lines, uh, the, the, this is based on data from an actual study. So they compared how they went about designing uh, liquid fuel rocket engines with a build, test, fix or traditional mindset versus one uh, the approach with the reliability mindset, making the first design a reliable design. So we don't have many um, really well-researched uh, studies like this because organizations that take reliability seriously don't have um, the bad example to compare to. But so this, these sort of studies are very rare, but very precious. And it just goes to show how important uh, making our first design reliable, uh, how important it is to make our first design reliable. Number seven. Reason number seven you want to do for me is making your thing better than your competitors. Now, this might sound a little bit weird or a little bit different to some of you out there. Reliability engineering is often associated with making the idea of some design team come to life in a way that, uh, that minimizes the probability of failure. Again, that is a mis misconception. Reliability engineering, yes, it's all about failure or preventing failure or minimizing the chance of failure. But what does failure mean to you? Well, sometimes if we simply define failure as any event where we fail to meet our customer or user's expectations, 
um, then for me has become an incredibly powerful tool. So let's look at that with an example. Here is a Motorola two-way radio. It's a very simple radio used across the world for by law enforcement agencies, um, work crews, uh, militaries, so on and so forth. And the idea is that this radio, uh, it has a what we call a push to talk button on the side, which means that every time you want to talk to the network you're on, you push the button, say what you want to say into the speaker, which now turns into the microphone, everyone else gets to hear it, release the button, and then you can hear what anybody says in response. It's a very simple radio, uh, obviously some complex electronics on the inside, uh, but it's, it's a, an amazingly powerful bit of kit. Um, and Motorola make fantastic two-way radios. They are the industry leader, some might argue, and because their two-way radios are really great to use. Now let's look at how they keep ahead of the game. All their competitors are catching up, or always seem to be catching up to what Motorola has in their next generation of two-way radios. And we're not talking about amazing space science, we're just talking about good design. So for example, uh, these, um, these two-way radios are used by military operators and the militaries across the world are a huge customer base or market segment for Motorola's two-way radio uh, industry, sorry, not industry division, directorate, whatever it is, whatever it is they call themselves. Now, uh, I'm ex-military, and I dare say a few of you are ex-military as well. When you're out doing your thing, uh, you are covered from head to toe in uniforms, protective uh, plates, all sorts of different things, and that includes often big, thick, heavy gloves. It can be cold out there. And even if it's not cold, when you're crawling along on the ground, uh, you need to use your hands to go from point A to point B. So you need to have these really thick, heavy gloves to make sure you don't have bits of glass or sharp rocks uh, force their way into your soft, sweaty palms. But you also need to use a two-way radio from time to time to let people know what's going on. So, Two-way radios have had historical problems with military operators pushing the push to talk button. Now, in any other scenario, you could, any engineer, any technically minded zealot could argue that, hey, if you can push that button and it conforms with my uh, specifications, my thing hasn't failed. I don't wanna hear about you saying, well, it failed because it's very hard to use with these thick gloves. It's sometimes too easy to push. Sometimes it's hard to locate. No, no. Uh, if you get caught up in the whole, I'm, I'm the engineer, I'm the technical expert. If you can push a button and it works, then it works. Then you are going to rapidly design something that no one else likes. Not Motorola. They knew what they needed to do and they used the familiar to get there. So like I said, they defined failure to be an event where the push to talk um, feature is difficult to press in military gloves. And they used, they, they completed a familiar based on this, what we call failure mode. Not just the thing breaking or, or catching fire or just not working anymore. They defined failure as something difficult. So uh, an event where it was difficult to use by a customer. And so they came up with th uh, these corrective actions. The first corrective action was they uh, improved the textile area 
on the push to talk button. And the reason they did that is because it makes it easier for the operator with thick military gloves to rub their thumb up and down the side of the, of the two-way radio and know when their thumb is on top of the push to talk button. The second corrective action they came up with was to incorporate a colored ring around the push to talk button. The rest of the radio tends to be dark color or, or black. Um, so they had, in many cases, a bright blue ring around the, uh, around the push to talk button, not big enough for it to give the uh, soldier away in the battle space, but certainly something that the soldier could see up close if they needed to rapidly identify where that push to talk button was. The third corrective action they came up with was these tactile locator ramps, which is a fancy word for essentially saying that they had these bumps at the each end of the push to talk button. So even in the, in the in pitch black of night, you could rub your thumb up and down the side of your, uh, your two-way radio or just get used to holding the two-way radio such that your thumb naturally, naturally lies between these two tactile locator ramp, ramps. And without you having to look down or without you being able to, uh, sorry, with you being able to, sorry, with you and your thick gloves uh, in, the, in the middle of the night, you would be able to easily uh, feel where that push to talk button is. And they also looked at how hard you had to press that button and how far it needed to go. So in this case, they, they increased the activation force and the travel, which meant that you needed to exert more force with your thumb, um, not an uncomfortable amount, not, not, not an amount that would otherwise make it unpalatable for other users, but in a way to make sure those big, buffy uh, military operator hands and those big, buffy military operator gloves wouldn't inadvertently push or activate the push or talk button uh, without, uh, without them having that tactile sensory feedback that a naked thumb gives you. So these are four corrective actions that Motorola was able to increase, sorry, include in essentially the first design of their next of their of the next uh, generation of their push to talk uh, sorry two-way radios and you should be able to see that these that these uh, characteristics are really really simple there's no earth-shattering technologies involved there's no um, there's, there's no exorbitant costs either sure you need to change the molding for the, for the case to have these tactile locator ramps for example but everything they did was essentially cost them essentially next to nothing in terms of incorporating into the next design. But this is the sort of stuff that speaks to users and customers. It's not the fancy stuff. If the basic stuff doesn't work, the basic stuff doesn't feel comfortable, then you get a bad rep. When you think, of, think about buying a bicycle, you might, be, uh, you might walk into a bicycle shop, you might have it down to 2%, uh, two bicycles which have the same, roughly the same price, have roughly the same specs, weigh the same, what are you going to do to choose which one you're going to purchase? You're going to test ride, test ride each one of those two bicycles. The one which has the most comfortable seat will be the one you buy without a shadow of a doubt. So uh, the, the comfortable seat, the comfort of the seat is often way more important than the uh, Shimano gears or the hydraulic brakes or whatever it is 
that makes that bicycle amazing. If that bicycle seat is not comfortable, good luck trying to sell it. It's these really simple things that for me is are wonderful at helping us identify to make sure that not only is our not only our first design is a reliable design, but our first design is an amazing design period. And when you do that, when you go through this process, you understand what your thing can do. And when you understand what your thing can do, that means that hope is, is, uh, out, of, is, uh, is out of the picture. What I mean by that, there have been plenty of times and plenty of organizations I've been involved with uh, where people are designing stuff. They go through the process of having the hydraulic pump here, steering over here, uh, waveform converter over here, get something which can functionally, at least on paper, work when it's all put together and just hope the customer likes it. Hope, uh, hope is really a bad strategy to have when you are designing something new and amazing, especially if you're trying to get ahead of the curve. Now, uh, militaries, uh, uh, the military defense industry is great for um, relying on hope. That is, we have contracts that go out to defense contractors, say, please design vehicle, weapon platform, whatever it is with these essential requirements. And we just hope when it comes back, uh, it's, not, it's going to be uh, put together or designed in a usable way, in a way that makes sense for our soldiers, sales and airmen. Um, but nine times out of 10, when we rely on hope, hope disappoints us because hope is not a strategy. Hope is a feeling, it's an emotion. Now, if you do it for Mia, and if you're involved in a contractual relationship and you're heavily involved for Mia's, you can influence how that system comes together in a way that eliminates hope. If you understand what your thing can do, you, can, you understand how you're going to disappoint your users uh, or customers, which means that you have all those really simple, inexpensive design characteristics built into your first design to make it both reliable and available. So that's number eight. The ninth reason you should be excited about for me is, is that they tick other boxes. Now, I did rather against ticking boxes in this webinar. So uh, let me explain. FAMIAs are a genuine risk management framework. We obviously have to deal with risk in everything we do. And sometimes we look at risk management as a separate activity, something which overarches what we do. We design, 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 we manufacture, we manufacture, we manufacture, we maintain, we maintain, we maintain. And at the end of each month, we have a risk management meeting and work out what, uh, what this idea of risk is, uh, what we can do to drive down risk to something as low as reasonably practical, so on and so forth. It almost feels like we stop doing our day job to think about risk. But if you embed familiars into your design process or your uh, manufacturing process, so that you're coming up with these wonderful ideas like tactile locator ramps on your, on your two-way radios, and wonderful ideas like securing the wire within your smart lock, then risk management is actually uh, part of what you do without you even knowing it. Oh, and by the way, if someone wants to audit your risk management framework, if you've done it for me properly, your worksheet is sitting there ready to go, explaining all the risks you've identified and what you're going to do to address them. This is a big deal in places, in organizations or scenarios where safety is crucial. Obviously not, uh, safety is always crucial, but not all product systems or services 
have a safety related risk associated with them. But if you do have safety, uh, if you do need to take into consideration safety, then having a familiar which is organic to your design or manufacturing process essentially means that people are doing risk as part of their day job. But there's lots of other things that Vermeers can help us out with as well. They can help us generate design verification plans and maintenance regimes, system and component test plans, process control plans, manufacturing specifications and tolerances, to name a few. The number of times I've been asked, hey, uh, by this customer or organization over here, hey, we're manufacturing this device. Can you please give us a standard that will tell us what tests we need to create to make sure our thing's reliable? That is dumb. If you do it for me, you automatically know what your most dominant failure modes are, which means that part of your corrective actions, once you've secured that wire, once you've included those tactile locator ramps, um, if it's to do with, for example, fatigue, one of, you could, you, one of your corrective actions could be to incorporate a very specific fatigue test in your design verification plan to make sure the alloy that your supplier used to manufacture the handle doesn't have uh, impurities or surface blemishes uh, that would lead to a fatigue failure. And that's where your testing relates to things like reliability in a way that avoids you relying on hope as a strategy. So for me, it ticks so many other boxes as well, if, if they're done well. And the last and perhaps, I won't say most important reason, but it's a very crucial reason uh, for people who are focusing on their own emotions and their own feelings when they're creating something and need to make it reliable, is that Vermeers are good at eliminating overwhelm. What do I mean by that? Well, here is a very basic representation of the production life cycle of something. And the thing we do at every step of the way is make a decision. And so decisions are everywhere. Decision, 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 decision. And sometimes the uh, magnitude of a particular decision or the number of decisions can paralyze us. That's called overwhelm. So let's, can, let's have a look at, that, look at this in a, in a slightly different way. This production life cycle is essentially a series of decisions. And as our good friend Fred always says, reliability happens at the point of decisions. Oh, and deciding not to not do something or avoiding making a decision is also a decision. So you can't get out of it by uh, not turning up to that decision-making process. So reliability happens at every one of these every one of these decisions, and that can be overwhelming. Well, if we look at uh, sorry for if we look at what this means for reliability engineering, and you go to a textbook, you will see an overwhelming amount of possible activities that you could uh, that you could uh, undertake when you design your thing. What do you do? Do you, you do you use all of them? The answer is no. You only need, you should only be using a couple of these, the vital few, we say. But which ones are the vital few? Well, if you're in any doubt, start with a FAMIA. Now, a system FAMIA is great because it focuses at the system level. It's a high-level analysis. This is this is one of the FAMIAs you do up front, where you prioritize the vital few, and it informs what we call a design FAMIA, which we'll look at 
very very shortly, where the design for Mia examines components and subsystems in a much more detailed way. Yeah. System for Mia is taking into consideration safety. They take into consideration single point failures, and most important, perhaps, uh, interfaces how our components interact with each other. If you don't consider interfaces, you can almost guarantee that your thing will fail because of an interface problem. We know as a rule that about 50% of failures we see in the field occur at interfaces. Look at the number of uh, spacecraft that have imploded on the surface of Mars at a great rate of knots because one software component was thinking uh, in terms of foot pounds and the other software component was thinking in terms of Newton meters, something as silly as that has doomed billions of dollars of work, billions of dollars of space effort or space flight effort because no one considered the interfaces. System for me is a great at that. It also allows us to look high level service support uh, and maintenance and all those things that are required to uh, make sure our system works throughout the journey. And of course, user experience, how our users going to interact with our thing, how the thumb is going to somehow find its way to the push to talk button. That happens at the system for me level. And uh, beyond that, system for me has helped us identify functions, functional relationships that are unique to our system. And perhaps finally, they really drive home how, sorry, really study how humans interact with our theme. So systems, system for me is a great at understanding what your system is, what those vital few are, looking at those interfaces and otherwise get, getting the ball rolling for your reliability engineering effort. The next sort of familiar we're talking about here is that design familiar. Now we do design familiars on individual components and subsystems and assemblies. Now we don't do design familiars on every component. A system familiar will tell us which ones we need to, need to focus on. We don't, if, if, if everything's important, then nothing's important. But design for me is all about improving the design, coming up with those reliability activities that are going to eliminate specific failure mechanisms. And that's how we avoid the overload. Do we need to do a specific test? Well, a design for me is gonna tell us. Do we need to use, uh, use this sort of uh, material over that one? Well, a design for me is gonna tell us. And if a design for me can't, the corrective action should be, uh, uh, we're going to examine this further. We're going to conduct this test to work out if that alloy is going to work in this application, which is where those test plans I was telling you about comes from. And other thing that design for me has helped us out with are those manufacturing specifications. How thick, how, what's the diameter of my shaft? How thick can it be? How thin can it be? Design for me is tell us how thick or thin our shafts need to be which then uh, drives uh, uh, things like system reliability analysis because we know what's going to fail, if it is going to fail, which once we analyze, helps us make a safe and reliable operation. Now, because we've done a system for Mia, we know how our component's going to interact with other components. So a design for Mia is going to make sure that our thing is designed in a way such, so that it will interact with the things that are next to it and the things that exchanges information or energy with. So that's why that's where design for me is a really, really useful in making sure that those interface problems don't become problems. So reliability, uh, life modeling, all things like physics of flow and accelerator life testing, we talk about these a lot. Do we need to do them? Do a design for me and you will find out.
It's designed for me to do all these wonderful things. System for me at the high level says, hey, of the, we need to do design for me on these 30% 30, uh, these 30% of our, all our components or subsystems. And when we do that, we get some amazing corrective actions, which help us make sure our first design is an amazing and reliable design. Now, obviously not everything is mechanical. So sometimes our design for me is become what we call software for me is where we focus on improving the code and we design things like fault tolerance software. We know what will happen if our thing fails because our system for me has already gone through that process. It says, hey, if this software code doesn't work, then our rocket implodes and people die or whatever the effort, the effect is. So we're able to prioritize our effort to make sure our software can tolerate faults which results in what we call high quality code, which is, for example, easy to fault find and debug. The number of soft, the amount of software code out there that is uh, written by one guy on a 72 hour straight uh, period of being awake, such that, uh, and it works in the first couple of tests, but three weeks later, um, gremlins emerge. And not even that guy who was able to, who wrote that code in that 70, 72 hours uh, fuel with Red Bulls and Monster Energy drinks, not even he can go back and work out what he was writing at the po that point in time. So it takes a humongous effort to pull what he did apart to work out what needs to change. So even just having uh, good quality code can help us uh, in terms of a reliability moving forward. So that's the software for Mia. It's sort of analogous to design for Mia, but at least for software. So let's go back to uh, design for me is where, we, where one of the outputs is manufacturing specifications. Why am I going to focusing on that one? Because another sort of FAMIA is a, is a FAMIA which focuses on manufacture, a process FAMIA, where we look at how we set up our manufacturing uh, plant to make sure whatever it is, whatever it is we're making aligns with those manufacturing specifications that design for me came up with. So our process for me, it's all about manufacturing process improvement, process control plans, how we come up with plans to make sure that our all our uh, robotic arms, all our milling machines are doing what they need to do. What are we looking for to make sure that our parts that come off the con conveyor belt are good to go, which sounds very abstract, but those of you involved in manufacturing, you know that the sooner you get on top of your process, the sooner you get to high volume manufacturing, which is what you need to do to reduce time to market. And this results in high quality parts, which aren't the cause of failure in the hands of your customer later on, uh, and ensuring that your product is built to design requirements. So it is safe to use with nominal downtime and minimal rework. What are we talking about there? Scrap. We don't wanna have to, uh, uh, for example, simply test everything that comes off the conveyor belt and throw away 40% of our ball bearings, which weren't manufactured within specifications. That's a terrible amount of scrap. That's a terrible amount of waste. We want to focus on uh, a process in our manufacturing plant, which, uh, in part, which involves very few defects. That's what processes for me is all about. Manufacturing, assembling, shipping, all those different things are included in our process for Mia. So that those are the big ones. System design, uh, process for me is they are the they are the ones which are uh, which are those are the big three that help make sure that we avoid that feeling of overwhelm that tell us what we need to do. 
And when we, you know, in the notes, you've got a couple of other references to other Vermeers as well. So if you do want to learn more about uh, some of the other Vermeers that are out there, look at them in the notes and feel free to reach out to me outside of this webinar to talk about them further. Now, the end state of a good Vermeer strategy is a simple approach to making reliability happen. Because if your approach is not simple, it's not going to happen. Now, Vermeer's introduced a real feeling of simplicity. Sure, you might need to do training. Sure, you might need to work on creating a familiar culture in your, in your organization. But when you focus on investing in that culture, then what you get is a simple process or a simple set of things you need to do to make sure that your first design is a reliable design. Now, one thing I always say the end of these sorts of conversations is that if reliability engineering isn't making you money, then you are doing it wrong. So for me, it should generate uh, huge returns on investment. Uh, if you remember that liquid fuel rocket engine example, look at how much time and money was saved overall by investing a smaller amount of time and money up front. And it all comes down to stopping and thinking. And that can be hard to do for us reliability engineers. But when we do, and we use tools like Vermeer's to get there, we make our first design a reliable design, which means we get off that build, test, fix treadmill. We, we only focus on the vital few things we need to. There's no overwhelm. Safety just happens because it's part of what we do. We manage risk without even knowing it, but it's all done. Uh, that's what we want to achieve when it comes to making sure our first design is a reliable design. But not only that, we can make our first design an amazing and reliable design as well. If we don't focus on preventing problems, then the only hope we have for making reliability happen is my good friend, the reliability fairy. Now the reliability fairy is a mythical creature that is able to somehow sprinkle reliability on the thing you're creating once you finish the design and manufacture. That in practice doesn't happen because once you find a problem during your final production run or at the end of your design life cycle, it means you have to go back and redo stuff you thought you had already done. And the later you find out about it, the more rework you have to do. And that amount of rework is not, typically not included in budgets. That's where our overruns come from. That's where our schedule delays come from. And the only way you can get around that, or two ways you can get around that, one, preventing problems by using a familiar or a similar tool, or two, hoping that the reliability fairy is actually a real thing, and it's not. So, so we need to focus on preventing pro our problems from day one. And when we do, we have, a, we have those, those uh, production processes which tend to have few fires, few catastrophes, few, few crises, few budget overruns, Schedules are usually, usually exceed our expectations and everyone is happy. And the reason we can do all this stuff with Vermeers is because we have these things called nuggets of gold. A nugget of gold is, uh, is what, what at least I refer to as that uh, little, little, um, little bit of corporate knowledge that you might know about the thing you work on. So here are some examples here. We're certainly not gonna go through all, all of them, but these are examples of nuggets of gold that you and your team have spread amongst you. So for example, we know that as a rule, any material change, including a corner, hole or weld will amplify stress. 
that little nugget of gold is absolutely fantastic because during our familiar, we can actively ensure that before we design anything, we, in, we uh, specify minimum radii for our corners to make sure that we don't amplify stress to an unacceptable level. And all of a sudden, we have all those little simple design changes or design characteristics involved from the start. And that means we have that really robust, reliable design because we harness all these nuggets of gold that you, me, everybody else around us have. The key is bringing them together with that amazing familiar facilitator to extract them out, prioritize them, and make them part of what you do. So for metals and alloys, we have all these little nuggets of gold. Again, these are in your notes. And the reason I'm having these shown relatively quickly is because the main point is everyone has lots of these nuggets of gold. Plastics and rubber. These are some typical things we consider for plastics and rubber. Ceramics. Do we want to have, for example, um, uh, strength or surface hardness? That's a big deal. Are you designing uh, something which is going to be structurally sound or is the ceramic going to be part, part of a bullet resistant vest? Composites and adhesives, very, very strong. Very easy to, to, to degrade if you use them in the wrong environment. Electronics is a big one. Look at this one over here. We know as a rule that if you derate your components by around about 50%, you can often uh, decrease your failure probability by around 30%. And that's a huge improvement in, in reliability. Um, and it might involve an insignificant change in your budget for your electronic components because a 10 picofarad resistor rated to 20 volts is marginally more expensive than a 10 picofarad uh, capacitor rated to 10 volts, for example. And there's many, many more nuggets of gold out there. And all familiars do is get them into, uh, is collect them, organize them in a very empowering, useful, non-intimidating way that amazing familiar facilitator so that everyone's uh, experience is evident in that first design. And this is great because that means that everything you have, you need to do to, uh, everything, everything you, sorry, you already have what you need to do uh, in order to make, sorry, you already have what you need to do amazing familiars. I'll get that out eventually. So it shouldn't be an intimidating process. You do need to spend time investing in that amazing familiar facilitator, training your team, coming up with your own familiar approaches. But once you do, everything becomes orders of magnitude, magnitude simpler thereafter. And it all comes back to the idea that everything fails through a vital few ways. So for me, is focus on these vital few. We don't want to fix everything. That's called over-engineering. We want to understand what the vital few things are, make sure they are designed out of our first design, and lo and behold, you have a very smooth production process. So those 10 reasons you should do, and you want to do for me, for me, I should say. One, no bad experiences. Amazing for me is are empowering, uh, Dare I say it, in some cases, fun. Sure, you can get me tired at the end of the day. But if you walk out of the familiar with all sorts of great ideas for how you can make sure that your electric motor is not going to embarrassingly fail in your system later on, then that's a really good thing. It's a really good feeling. There's no complicated equations. If you do it right, your, your fixes are inexpensive because they're done early. They're almost insignificant parts of the design. It could be simply moving a... a uh, 
a very hot power supply from one side of your one side of your case to another to make sure it doesn't uh, doesn't uh, impact another component which is sensitive to temperature. How simple is that? It's essentially free. Just having your uh, power supply isolated from a, a thermally sensitive bits of kit, and it's fantastic. It's it's free stuff if you think about it in time. Which means that we don't wish we should have done. We could have done something way back when when we thought of it because we have actually gone through the process about think, of thinking about it. Which means our first design is a reliable design. We save lots of time and money. And if you recall the Motorola example, our thing is just better. It's better without having us without us having to invest a ton of time, ton, ton of time and money into making it better. And when we do that, we understand what our thing can do, so we don't have to rely on hope which is not a strategy. We tick all sorts of other boxes. Risk is part of what we do. We live and breathe risk without knowing it. We come up with test plans without us having to nervously look for or scramble for a, a, a standard later on. And when we go through this process, we invest in it upfront, we do not get overwhelmed. So, are there any questions? I'm more than happy to stay around for as long as possible. I see a question from uh, Hesham. Uh, yes, the uh, presentation, a PDF version of this presentation will be on the Ascendo website where this webinar can be found. So uh, we won't send it to you, but if you come and check out this webinar on the website thereafter, uh, once it's been uploaded by Fred, you will have a PDF version of these slides. Are there any more questions or comments? Thank you, Brian. So just maybe one thing that uh, Brian has, uh, for whatever reason, remind, reminded me about. When you're in an organization, what tends to really suck as a motivational tool is all those things like brand reputation and you know, long-term profitability and all that sort of stuff, which doesn't mean anything to a hydraulic engineer or an electronics technician or anything, uh, anything specific in terms of their performance appraisals. But if we look at the 10 reasons I went through today, we can actually see that, hey, if we do for me is, is sure, it's gonna affect our brand reputation in a good way later on, because our thing is gonna be reliable, but you're, go you're going to be on time. You're gonna be on budget. It's not gonna be your thing, which embarrassingly fails when you do your first prototype testing your electric motor will be properly secured. That cable will be designed in a way that uh, slamming the door won't destroy those solder joints. Your uh, push to talk button is gonna be really, really uh, good to use. Customers are going to compliment uh, your boss on how well that push to talk button was designed and that's gonna reflect well on you. These are all things which matter for you. Um, Don, thank you very much. It wasn't a, wasn't a question, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll happily, uh, happily talk about it. Uh, so Neil has said, what's your take on linking process for me with design for me is? Okay, that's a really good question, Neil. The simplest way of, um, of linking design for me is with process for me is, and we didn't really go into the taxonomy of, of, of for me is today. Um, Essentially, 
a design for me team can identify a root cause of failure, a potential root cause of failure, uh, something being, for example, outside of tolerances. What do I mean by that? So let's go to our smart lock example. A design for me team has realized that if our handle, which goes over a hexagonal shaft, if the socket of that handle is too small, such that it can fit over our hexagonal shaft, but it sort of has to stretch a little bit when it doesn't. That incorporates uh, pretensile stresses, which is a bad thing for fatigue. So the design for me team will, will work out, hey, the socket of our handle needs to align with the uh, dimensions of our shaft in a way that we don't have pretensile stresses. Now, that design for me team goes, I don't know what that clearance needs to be. They they uh, speak to the adhesive guy. So they call up the adhesive guy on the phone and he says, you need to have a 0.025 millimeter clearance uh, between the um, uh, between the, the shaft and the socket. And you say, okay, well, can it be 0.2? Can it be 0.3? What's the limits on your on your, your recommendation for clearance? And he says, oh, it needs to be between 0.2 and 0.3. Anything more, more uh, above or below that will mean that you'll have problems later on. Brilliant. So you've gone through the thought process, you've identified what the clearance needs to be, and then you speak to the manufacturing team for the handle and work out what the tolerance needs to be for the handle. Same with the socket for the for the uh, sorry the socket for the socket for the handle and the tolerance for the shaft, and you come up with specifications that need to um, that the, that each individual manufacturing team needs to adhere to to make sure the clearance is in that butter zone of 0.02 to 0.03 millimeters. Now, when you do that, the potential cause of failure will be one of those two things being outside of specifications. So you take that, that, that outcome of your design for Mia, and that goes into your process for Mia. How can your process fail? Well, the handle is gonna be outside the specification. So the design for Mia comes up with all these specifications and the process for Mia defines failure to be not adhering to that specification and then off you go. So that's how they, how they uh, link Neil. Did I answer your question well enough or do I need to have another go? It's waiting for a potential response. Okay, thank you, Neil. Again, if, if I haven't done a good enough job, or you think of something later, um, please feel free to uh, reach out to me as well. Paul asks, do you recommend hiring a facilitator or becoming a good one yourself? That's a good question, Paul, and there's no right or wrong answer. Um, organizations who take this very seriously have, I've seen, have really good facilitation skills inside their team. That said, those are organizations which take it seriously. And when I say organization, I mean, organization, not just a couple of people here and there, just it means that everyone from the boss down to the, to the uh, graduate student, uh, graduate engineer, I should say, they, for whatever reason, the culture has been created over years to really value Vermeers. And that's where Vermeer facilitation typically uh, works organically. But for organizations which are not there yet or on the journey there, it's really hard, at least in my experience, for them to generate for me a facilitator's worth their salt. And sometimes it's difficult, even if you have a good culture, 
to have a good Vermeer facilitator because Vermeer facilitation requires practice. So if your organization launches a new product every two years and therefore you only do that sort of initial Vermeer effort every two years, it's very hard to maintain that sort of those human skills that good Vermeer facilitators have. So depending on your organization, if your organization is very mature when it comes to reliability, and if they do Vermeers a lot, then it makes sense to invest in creating your own Vermeer facilitation capability. Identifying those couple of people who are going to be the champions of Vermeers, make sure they're motivated, make sure they like it, and they become your Vermeer facilitator through training uh, and through practice. Anything else, you might want to look at hiring an external facilitator. Uh, does that answer your question, Paul? I can see a couple of comments coming as well. I'll get to you in a minute. No worries. Thank you, Paul. All right. Hojat, I hopefully I pronounced your name correctly, uh, asked, can we conduct a familiar session on software only? So uh, not exactly sure we, what that means, but I will have a go at answering it. COVID-19 has taught us that FAMIAs can be done very well virtually. In fact, virtual FAMIAs, I was speaking to my colleague, Carl Carlson, the godfather of FAMIAs, he's quite literally written the book on FAMIAs. Um, and we're, I suppose we were both a little bit skeptical about how well you could do FAMIAs virtually before COVID-19 came along, but COVID-19 came along and it forced us to do it FAMIAs virtually. And it turns out if you prepare enough and if you embrace technology, not only can uh, virtual Vermeers be as good as uh, in-person Vermeers, they can sometimes be better. There's pros and cons to each approach. And I personally really prefer, uh, oh, sorry, I really like having human-to-human uh, uh, -human interaction, but in practice, we can't always do that. So virtual Vermeers, when done well, can almost have the same level of interaction, but it makes sure that if our resident expert is in Sweden, that person can easily dial into our familiar and therefore we are not burdened by uh, problems associated with distances and travel. So if that was your question, Hijack, can familiars be done on software only? We uh, certainly are doing familiars uh, virtually in terms of the medium, we, we, uh, the medium for making the familiar happen. If, on the other hand, are you asking, if you're asking, can we do Vermeers on software products only? The answer is yes. In fact, software Vermeers are their own sort of own beast because uh, they're very, it's a very different system. I mean, software system is very different to a mechanical system. So we have software specific Vermeers. Um, I hopefully that answered your question. If I haven't, uh, please let me know uh, uh, while I uh, while I answer some other questions. So I can see that David Kinsey, uh, he's not asking a question. He's saying a, a very well-received comment, uh, great presentation, and this should be required viewing for all familiar leaders and facilitators. Well, thanks for the feedback. And the idea is that if people can understand how valuable familiars are, then we want to do it, which means that we get good outcomes because people are bought in. Thank you, uh, Long Chun, as well. Volker writes, in most new plant designs, Asset criticality is mostly dedicated, decided post-build, which leaves or makes decisions, uh, decision applications uh, to apply to a familiar aligned to pr criticality pre and during design, a major time consumer thus ignored. How can this be changed? 
Well, that's a very big question, um, and uh, it's it's a it's not it's challenging because, as you point out, uh, criticality is often decided post build. Now, there is some changes afoot. I know model-based systems engineering, for example, is looking to address issues like this, but it's not the answer. The reality is people need to want to do it, which means they need to understand why they need to do it up front. Um, but again, there are some cultural and practical limitations for the challenge you're, you're outlining here. In terms of, uh, I, I think the simplest way of answering or trying to answer your question is that people don't do Vermeers because they think it's a time consumer. Now, no one does anything or no one wants to do anything if the only thing they associate with that activity is the consumption of time. If we can somehow uh, create a culture or a mindset where people see Vermeers as a generator of value, that's when things are going to change. So it's going to be uh, through uh, propaganda sessions like this one, uh, where we say, hey, it's not just present, preventing failures 10 years from now, it's actually making sure our first design is a reliable design, so we're on time, on budget. Oh, and by the way, we can make our first design reliable and amazing as well, wouldn't that be cool? And that's where people get invested and that's where things start to happen. So I don't know if that answers your question well enough, um, but if it hasn't, please let me know and I'll resubmit. Uh, Paul, I have, Paul says, I have experienced lots of resistance for software product Vermeers because software developers are unfamiliar with Vermeer and don't generally fall under the same engineering structure as mechanical engineers. I'd actually say that's a common thread across lots of engineering disciplines and it comes back to awareness and training. So there are software specific Vermeers out there, which by definition are software specific. So it's, it's all about the, it comes down to the will of the organization, the culture of the organization, the leadership involved. And yes, uh, software engineers aren't irrational, especially if they're being forced into uh, design for mirrors, which focus on the mechanics of stuff and being told to adapt to that process. Of course, they're gonna be, they're gonna feel burnt and jaded and not wanna come back ever again. But if we can teach these guys and girls uh, what a software familiar is, how good it is, um, and how much value they will personally get from a familiar, then uh, that's where things will hopefully start to change. And especially in my familiar training, I always start with the 10 reasons why you want to do familiars because that gets the students motivated to remember all the stuff they're about to go through. Okay, thank you, uh, Volker. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the comments section over here. Let's see. Um, all right, some of them. So Hojat uh, goes back to the whole software thing, I believe. Uh, so essentially where uh, I think Hojat's asking us to do a webinar one day about uh, on uh, what a software for me is and the techniques used, which I uh, agree there's a need for, and I'll speak to Fred about including that in our schedule of for me is uh, a schedule of webinars moving forward. That's the last question. Okay, so we still have 24 long suffering attendees. Are there any more questions, any more comments? 
about the 10 reasons you want to do for me is. No worries, Hodja. It's uh, we've got we've got a list of things to do. Uh, sorry, in, the, in that will probably fall ahead of that software for Mia webinar, but uh, and there are some software for Mia specialists out there, people who do nothing but software for Mia's, and and maybe uh, maybe they could be a special guest webinar. What's what's the what's what we call a person who runs a webinar? It's not a webinee, uh, webinar. I don't know. We could uh, perhaps reach out to some of our colleagues moving forward. But more, more than happy to uh, to do one if we uh, can get that in our priority list. Any more questions or comments? I think we're good. And I'll just uh, maybe wait a couple more seconds for Ed to, to allow for potentially long and uh, detailed question to suddenly pop up. But I think we're closer to the end, closer to the end than the start. But for those of you who are still here, hey, thank you very much for turning up uh, to the webinar today. We really do enjoy reaching out to you guys. And even though we don't hear your dulcet voices in response, the uh, feedback and questions we get and the comments we get during this, these webinars, make sure we know you're engaged and getting something out of what we do. So again, thank you very much for your support for this webinar. If there's any questions you have moving forward, please feel free to reach out. And of course, uh, I do FAMIA training as well. Uh, and there's tons of FAMIA specialists. So I really, I really, if you want to learn more about FAMIAs and Ascendos, uh, Carl Carlson has as much information as you'll ever you'll ever need on how to do for me as well. Those amazing for me is if you do want to take you for me a journey and just want to have a conversation or chat again, feel free to reach out uh, on my email address, which is associated with this webinar page on Ascendo. But uh, beyond that, I'm guessing there's no more questions. You enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, wherever you are across the world or whatever day of the week it is that you decide to uh, uh, rewatch or review this webinar. But again, thanks for turning up and thanks for making this webinar an engaging experience, at least for me.